Jesus really does change everything. And um, we hope that by hearing these brief stories that uh, you not only see how Jesus has changed everything in our lives, uh, but how he can change everything in yours. Um, that's our hope of what we want to communicate uh, this Easter, is that as people join us, some who haven't been here in a year, some who have never been here, some who maybe have never set foot in a church before, could hear stories of how Jesus changes everything for them. Uh, we would love to feature parts of your story. Uh, I shared this last week. We have this email address, stories at org. Uh, email us uh, a brief story, and we will connect with you over the next week or so and um, get, a, get, a, get a video. Uh, several of you have already responded over the last week, and I've tried to reply to those, and we've, um, Sean has been reading through those, and we're going to start uh, continuing. He's done some filming already this week to, to, to get that together for Easter Sunday. Um, but here's my appeal to you. Uh, keep sending those in, but here's a specific appeal. Uh, we have, to this date, only had, I think, one uh, man respond over the last, what, year we've been doing Stories at Lebanon Christian Church. Men, I know it's hard to be vulnerable, but as I look around the room, I see multiple men who Jesus has changed everything for, uh, from all generations. And would you be bold enough uh, to share part of that story? And you may not know how to get started, and here's just a suggestion I would make is uh, try to get that 30 minutes, maybe of some quiet, wherever your sweet spot is. If it's going to be a nice day today, maybe it's out in the woods, maybe it's on a walk, uh, maybe it's just sitting out, looking out a window, and just start just making a list. How, how has Jesus changed everything for me? How am I different because of Jesus? And then just go back over that list and, and, and see what the Lord draws to mind as far as these are some of the most impactful places for me. You heard some of that in my own little brief story. I know that one of the primary ways Jesus has changed everything for me is on how I view myself in light of how he views me uh, and how I view women in light of how he views me and how he views them. And so I can kind of dial in on a couple points that allow me to just have that brief testimony. So maybe that's you. I would just encourage you men, be bold, because when you share, uh, there will be a man here uh, Easter weekend who needs to hear what you have to say. That's just how good God is, and that's what God does. Uh, so would you help us share the story of how Jesus changes everything, uh, how he's done it for you, and show people how he can do it for them. Again, uh, Easter services, uh, if, you, if you don't know yet, uh, we've been saying it for several weeks. It's on our socials and everything. Uh, Good Friday, 7 o'clock, and here in this space, a quiet, reflective, contemplative kind of Good Friday worship experience. There will be singing, there will be reading, there will be reflection, there will be communion. Uh, that's in this room. Uh, on Saturday and Sunday, we have our worship experiences, 4.30 on Saturday. That's everybody. There are no special programs for children or students. Our family room will be open if parents want to stay in there with their children, and the service will be on a television there. Uh, but we'll all be in here together at 4.30 on Saturday. Exact same worship experience is repeated, Sunday at 9 and Sunday at 10.30. But Sunday, we will have full children's programming, preschool children during both 9 and 10.30. And our student ministry will be holding their overflow student-led worship experience at 9 o'clock for our junior high and high school students. Uh, but there won't be any life groups at, at 10.30. So those are our Easter plans. I just want to encourage you to continue to, to make yours in light of what they are for our church. And then I want to share something new with you uh, this morning. Uh, you will all have the chance to take home one of these cards next week. Uh, next week, April 2nd, uh, is exactly 40 weeks until the end of the year. 
This also happens to be uh, Lebanon Christian Church's 40th anniversary year. And so we are beginning to champion how we can make a difference, not just what we've done the last 40 years, but we can do in the next years that God gives us. So one of the challenges we're placing before ourselves and before our congregation is, could you participate in 40 acts of impact for our community, uh, for our world, uh, for our church, uh, between now and the end of the year. And so um, Jason has done a great job of developing um, this card that everyone's going to get on the back are a number of ideas. Um, anything from uh, some one-time acts that can be repeatable, bake a treat, deliver it to a neighbor, uh, contact the heart of Lebanon and serve at a community event, donate to a scholarship fund, uh, donate to first responders, Pack a backpack for Packing Hope. Pick up trash on the Big Four Trail. Uh, volunteer to bring food to Kids Ministry or 412 event. Some other repetitive acts. Become a Boone County mentor. Requires a little more of an investment. Volunteer with the Black Box Theater. Uh, here are some larger scale group acts. Contact a local nonprofit and tackle a big project. Host a neighborhood car wash. Sing Christmas carols to neighbors and community members. And you may come up with your own list of ideas. Um, but would you, would you encourage your families, your household, uh, to participate in 40 acts of impact as we celebrate uh, 40 years as a church. And so that's coming next week. Again, April 2nd to the end of the year. There's 40 weeks left. We thought it might be a really cool timeline. And um, we'll have these available for you. Uh, let's pray and uh, then we'll jump in. Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for the chance to be together. And I know this is an odd kind of season here where uh, so many of those in our community are uh, jetting out and going places and enjoying spring breaks. And I just pray that you would guide um, those in our church that are doing that, that they would seek true renewal and true rest and true uh, Sabbath peace as they are away. And God, for those that are here, Father, maybe who feel a twinge of jealousy or envy, um, bring contentment to their hearts and our hearts. Um, but God, in all of this, God, may we seek you. Uh, may, may we find you in your word this morning. May your spirit uh, impress upon us your power and your truth and your wisdom. God, may you bring freedom uh, to people who are being held captive. God, may you bring light into dark places. And God, may you align our hearts around your purposes. God, if that's someone who has yet to find you, yet to follow you, yet to seek you, draw them into your life this morning, that they might find their purpose in you, Father. And for those that are already striving to follow you or have said that they want to honor you, God, draw us into your purpose. And we pray you would do it through the power of your spirit and through your word. God, would you be honored? Uh, would you be praised? Uh, amen. When you hear uh, the word blockbuster, uh, what comes to mind? I would guess that for some, if you're between the ages of maybe five and 25, uh, when you think of blockbuster or blockbusting, maybe an image of Minecraft or something might come to mind, right? Because it's this uh, world on a video game full of soils and diamonds and stones and all these things kind of in block-like structures. And you have that cool little animation where you hit things and like blocks bust and they go all over the place. Maybe that's not what you think of. Maybe when you hear the word blockbuster, you think of, you know, that, that great movie that comes out in the summer and everybody wants to go see it. I think last summer, Top Gun Maverick, right? It was a blockbuster. It's a big thing. People want to watch it. People want to see it. 
I'm guessing if you're over the age of 35, uh, when you hear the word blockbuster, uh, you might think of a movie rental place, right? And maybe you're aware of Blockbuster, even if you're under the age of 35, that made a cameo appearance in Captain Marvel, you know, one of the, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe's films. Uh, the Kree kind of crashed through the store. Um, if you don't know who the Kree are, you have to watch Marvel to find that out. But, but, but Blockbuster, like it, it was in the late 90s and early 2000s. I mean, it was the premier go-to place for renting movies and video games. There were other rental places. We had family videos, maybe your local grocery store. But like Blockbuster was the target of movie rental, right? It was the cool place. It was the trendy place to go to. Like if you could reach into your wallet and you could pull out the little blue card that said Blockbuster, like, like you knew that you had a ride. You had a membership at Blockbuster. You might even save up enough points to get you know, a five-night movie rental for free. Like, like Blockbuster was it. Uh, Do do you know that Blockbuster uh, kind of was into analytics before it ever became popular and something that we talked about? Uh, David Cook, who founded Blockbuster, by the way, at the height of Blockbuster, there were 9,000 Blockbuster stores in the world. 5,000 plus of them were in the United States. That's a lot of movies being rented. But but, but David Cook, when, when he created Blockbuster, like he wanted to analyze people's tendencies. And so he would have a team that poured over the databases that collected uh, from customers at every location. And they would analyze the demographics of the people renting. They would analyze the popular movie and video game choices. And then they would curate unique libraries of videos. Of course, there was similarity across stores when popular movies came out, but they would curate a unique library of films at every Blockbuster location. So when someone came into a Blockbuster store, they would come in and they'd say, you know what? They always have something that I wanna watch. Because they've studied you. They know your tendencies. They know what you like. And so Blockbuster really grew that way. Part of the reason why Blockbuster was on my mind this week, you'll hear more in just a moment, but it kind of was back in the news. Um, Blockbuster this week reactivated their website. There's always been kind of this cult following around Blockbuster. Um, There's only one store left, by the way, in the world, and I'll show you a picture of that in, in just a few moments. But the Blockbuster reactivated its website. And so even through yesterday, I checked again. This is a screenshot of if you go to Blockbuster's website, it says, uh, be kind while we rewind. And for those of you that are under the age of 35, you may not understand that. There used to be these cool things called video cassette tapes. I guess they were cool. I don't know. But um, you would watch your whole film through to the end, and then you had to rewind it. And people would get in a hurry. The, the rental was going to be late, and they would just kind of take it back to the store. They have to have these rewind machines. So it was always a kind thing, a great human thing to do, right, uh, to rewind your video cassettes. But this was the message, and it's still on there. Uh, I haven't checked today. Maybe some of you are Googling it right now. But it was still on there as of yesterday. And so there's this kind of this thing like, is Blockbuster reinventing itself? Are they coming back? Why is it that Blockbuster had so much success and now there's only one Blockbuster in the entire world? From 9,000 to one. And the one store, by the way, is in Bend, Oregon. And I think there should be a picture. Um, This was just taken this year. This is from their Facebook page. Um, Almost every other image is copyrighted, so I couldn't take it. But this is on their Facebook page. And um, it's, it's the one Blockbuster left. Why is there one Blockbuster? Well, you probably know the story. Uh, in the mid, early 2000s, the first decade, a place called Netflix kind of showed up on the scene. And instead of you having to go to the video store, they started shipping the DVDs to your house and you could just send them back and they kind of eliminated late fees. They had a monthly charge. 
And then as DVDs became more obsolete, and if you don't think DVDs are obsolete, I'm sorry, that probably shows your age. As DVDs became more obsolete um, and streaming took hold, then um, there was not really a need to go to Blockbuster anymore. But here's the problem. Blockbuster still thought this old pattern, this old way of doing things, it's going to continue to work. So we don't need to pivot we don't need to ship DVDs to people's homes. We don't need to stream anything. Like, like this old way of doing things is gonna work. And the longer they held on to the old way of doing things, the more they missed out on the new and it resulted in the whole company going bankrupt. And I think there's a lesson in that for us, even as it relates to our purpose, as we look at pursuing our purpose in this world, the purpose that God has given us. Are there times that we hold on to an old pattern of living, an old model of living, an old structure of how we live our life, a whole, an old system of beliefs and values. We hold on to it and it keeps us from experiencing the fullness of our purpose in God. We were saying in this series, it's one of our, you know, three components of our strategic plan that we want to pursue our purpose. We want to do a better job of leading the people of Lebanon Christian Church. We want to ourselves experience more and more of God's purpose in this world. And your purpose quite succinctly is to honor God with your life, to live for him and to help others do the same. That can be summed up in a number of ways. You hear it in kind of uh, our desire to be disciples, learners of King Jesus, followers of King Jesus, who help other people come to learn from King Jesus and follow King Jesus. We wanna be disciples who make disciples. It's all about honoring God and living for him and helping other people do the same. That is the purpose for which every, every human being ever created was made for. Now, whether you realize that purpose or not, um, that depends on if you've come to trust in what God has to say about your life. But if you're a follower of Jesus, that's the purpose for which you were made, to honor him, to live for him, and to help other people. Now, that's our purpose. This is what we're supposed to be doing. This is the new thing that we should be living for. But how many of us kind of reach for that, but at the same time, we hold on to an old way of living that maybe isn't honoring to him or living for him or helping others do the same? And is there a tension in holding on to an old way of living and, and trying to hold on to the new way and not quite getting there? And I think there is for many of us. And by the way, the concept of old and new, it's completely scriptural. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who find their life in Christ Jesus, for those who find their identity in Jesus, the old has gone and what? The new is here. It's letting go of the old and embracing the new. And as we strive to live on purpose for Jesus, as we try to strive to pursue our purpose, we're going to have to let go of the old to hold on to the new. This tension is seen uh, throughout Acts chapter 19. Um, you know this. Uh, if it's not obvious to you, it will be the more you read Scripture. The tension is all over the pages of Scripture. Letting go of the old and clinging to the new. Uh, here's just a little exhibit A. Uh, the Israelites in the wilderness. They left Egypt. Let's embrace the new. Let's trust God. Let's follow him. Let's live for him. Let's live for his purposes. And yet they hold on to the old. Oh, but Moses, the garlics. Garlics? Is that how you? I don't know. The garlic, the leeks, the onions. 
Like, like they were so much better in Egypt. Like, let me hold on to the old instead of embracing the new, trusting God for the manna that comes from heaven every single day. Oh, let's, let's worship the golden calf. Let's, let's, let's find something that tantalizes our senses and gives us a, a purpose while, while Moses is up on the mountain meeting with the God of the universe who gives them purpose. Look at the time of the judges. People pursue the desires of their heart, every evil thing that they want to do instead of pursuing the things of God. And and, and it just persists throughout human history. And so it shows up, of course, in the book of Acts. And if we're honest, it shows up in our own life. We struggle to let go of the old and embrace his new. In Acts 19, and we're just gonna kind of keep following where we've been. If you've not been journeying with us, welcome. We've been preaching through Acts for the last six months. The last few weeks, we've been in Acts 17, then Acts 18, and now Acts 19. And we're looking at what we can learn from Paul on these missionary journeys. And in Acts chapter 19, uh, Paul arrives in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, we see a brilliant display of God's power. But we also see how that informs how his people live for his purposes. And something you'll come to understand as you walk with Jesus is that there's a correlation between our appreciation for God's power and how we live for his purposes. In fact, the more we appreciate, are in awe of, understand, uh, um, accept God's power, the, the more we'll be propelled or compelled to live for his purposes. And that's on display here in Acts chapter 19. We're not gonna read every verse. We'll read some along the way and we're gonna really dial into verses 17 through 19 as we move towards the later half of the message. But just when you see God's power on display in Ephesus to start, uh, the first seven verses talk about how when Paul came to Ephesus, uh, he encountered a group of followers of Jesus, a group of disciples. And yet he comes to learn from them that they have not yet been baptized into Jesus. Uh, You may recall that when Jesus came, uh, people were baptized into him. Uh, When the day of Pentecost comes, uh, people are told to repent and be baptized, every one of them, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Like being baptized into Jesus, receiving the Holy Spirit, being made new was another step in the spiritual journey. And here are people who've not yet heard about the baptism of Jesus. They've not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so what does Paul do? He helps them come to understand and look at the powerful display that happens from God, verses five and six. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. So so God moves in a powerful way when people go all in. And I would submit to you in this moment that if you are not yet all in, maybe you just like Jesus, maybe you would say you believe in Jesus, but you have not fully surrendered to Jesus in faith, entered into his life in baptism, been filled with his Holy Spirit, then, then you're missing out. And there's power from God when we choose to go all in for King Jesus. Moving on to, to verses eight through 10, uh, Paul goes to the synagogue like he does in these other cities. And if you've been journeying with us, you rewind to Acts chapter 18, he's in Corinth. Uh, Last part of Acts chapter 17, he's in Athens. Uh, Then he's in Berea, and then he's in Thessalonica before that. And each of those places, he goes into the synagogue and he reasons for sometimes just a few weeks, sometimes multiple weeks, but every place he gets run out. Something unique happens when he gets to Ephesus. 
No longer is he there just for a few weeks or five or six weeks. We, we learn that he got to reason and dialogue with people about Jesus in the synagogue for three months. That's evidence that God is doing something special. God is working. Uh, there, there's, there's greater conversations that are unfolding. And even when he's run out of the synagogue, uh, he moves on to a hall, the hall of Tyrannus. And it tells us that he reasons there for two years. From, 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 from 11 o'clock, probably in the morning, to about four o'clock in the afternoon, he reasons with people about who Jesus is. He reasons with Jews. He reasons with Greeks. He, he helps them come to see who Jesus is. God is moving in such a powerful way. In fact, Paul, Paul ended up being in Ephesus for about three years, his longest ministry in any one city during his missionary journeys. God moving in powerful ways. And even there's this story you can see kind of in the background, Paul's fulfilling his purpose as he trusts in the power of God. He's continuing to leave behind what was and embrace the new of Jesus and his story and his kingdom. So then we get to verses 11 and 12 and things get interesting. And by interesting, I mean really interesting, like stranger things interesting. Look at verses 11 and 12. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. The New Living Translation says, God did unusual miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Even as you hear that, even as you listen to that and read that, I would guess that in many of us, there's a sense of, ooh, that, that's a little weird. That, that's a little odd. Like people could take the, the handkerchiefs or hankies as my grandpa would call them and uh, the, the same ones that Paul had wiped his sweat with and they would just touch someone and they could be healed, healed of an illness. An evil spirit would leave. They could take the apron that Paul had used in making tents and, and just let someone touch it and an evil spirit would flee or the person would be healed. If we're just honest, that feels a little bizarre to us, doesn't it? Maybe you have a bad experience. Maybe, maybe you've watched one too many televangelists on TV who offered to send you a piece of cloth that they had touched and it would bring healing to your life. Or, or maybe just the idea of spirits and evil spirits is, is just so foreign. I'd encourage you to just kind of rest in this for a moment. There's an invitation in these verses to kind of lean in and to recognize something that we are so good at ignoring in our American culture. There, there, there is a spiritual realm. When we talk about spiritual things, it's not just about your growth and becoming like Jesus. There is an adversary. There is an enemy. There is a devil he goes by the name of Satan, the one who is opposed to God, who is working to go against all that God wants to do in this world. And he is very real, and he has his own legion of minions, demons, spirits, whatever you want to call them, that work against the purposes of God, and it's very real. But we don't see it. Oh, the effects are around us all the time, uh, but we often will ignore it. Because what, what do we like in America? We like our stories, right? So we can keep magic, we can keep dark arts, we can keep spirits in the realm of Harry Potter. It just makes a great story. We can put them in a horror film. Woo, be scared, right? The 
But sometimes we do that to our own detriment because they're real. Why would God need to use Paul's hankies and aprons? Well, here's something you should know about Ephesus. When you study ancient Ephesus, you find that it was kind of the center, like magic, dark arts, uh, spirits, and spiritists were big in the Roman Empire. But Ephesus was kind of the center of that. In fact, there was one goddess worshipped in Ephesus. Uh, Her name's Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, They worshipped her. In fact, there was a temple in in, in Ephesus uh, called the Temple to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, You can Google. I I prefer you don't do that right in this moment. Um, But uh, but you could Google and you can find pictures of what that would look like rendered, uh, you know, in its day, but also can see some of the archaeological finds they have of the Temple to Artemis. Now, we know from all kinds of sources they found outside of Scripture that magic curses, spell books, all that was a huge part of culture in Ephesus. The occult was huge in Ephesus. So here are people who have grown up thinking about spirits. We'll find out in a few moments even that many of them had books that have been passed down from generation to generation that included spells. We're talking about witchcraft. We're talking about curses, all these things. People were trained from a young age. Like we can you know, kind of delve into the spirit realm. We don't have to really care if it's good spirits, evil spirits, whatever. Like, like we can use that to manipulate, to get what we want, to do what we want. So in a culture that's saturated with spiritual stuff, how does God show off that he's even greater? He does extraordinary and unusual things. And so he works through Paul's handkerchief and Paul's apron. That, that's a key word here. Verse 11, just look at these two words. God did extraordinary miracles. The handkerchief, the apron, they aren't what was magical. It's God who does the work. So there's power being shown, power being declared that actually compels people to follow God's purposes in their life. F- following this section, there's this really interesting story. You can read it for yourself um, Kind of the summary is, is that there are seven Jewish men, sons of a man named Sceva, and we don't know a whole lot about their history, but what we do know is that they kind of had now made their living. Their life was about exercising demons. Um, They would, we think, kind of been guilty of what we would call syncretism. Syncretism is when you take beliefs and values of other religions, uh, other cultures, other ideals, other worldviews, and you attach them to another religious system, basically to create a religious system that's convenient for you. By the way, this happens all the time in our world, right? And maybe one way it shows up for us is that we will take beliefs and values from other religions. Let's say even for a moment, reincarnation. Uh, the Hindus who believe in reincarnation, right? Um, you, 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 may, you, may, you may find that someone in our world, maybe it's even you, and I don't do this to step on your toes or to push you, you know, too hard, but you need to see the truth. Well, we'll say that people come back as animals. And yet we adapt some of those beliefs when we talk about those who have gone before us, those who have died. And we'll say, hey, I saw this hummingbird. Uh, this, this, this animal showed up in the woods, the sunrise, I just knew my mom, my dad, my child was speaking to me. That's a belief from another religion that we attach to our faith. That's syncretism. And what was happening for these Jewish leaders is that they would take and they would see that, um, you know, this exorcisms were happening, evil spirits were in Ephesus. And so they kind of made their living going throughout Ephesus and casting out demons. Well, they noticed that Paul is doing a lot of great things. 
Paul is talking about one named Jesus. And so they have this opportunity to cast out a demon. They cast him out in the name of Jesus, who Paul believes in. They don't believe in him. And what what happens? Uh, The demon-possessed man overpowers the seven exorcists and casts them out. And they run away naked and in shame. And so obviously a story like this makes the six o'clock news in Ephesus. People are like, oh my goodness, there are spiritual powers. And it has this great effect on those who believe and those who trust in Jesus. They recognize that there is power in the spiritual realm. And it helps them see their need for the greater power of who God is in light of the spiritual realm. And so look at what happens in verses 17 through 19. This is kind of the meat. Um, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, awe, reverence. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. It was elevated to this high place that deserves the character of Jesus, the, 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 the purposes of Jesus, what he stands for. And many of those who believed... These are disciples. These are people who call themselves Christians, right? Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. So when the people, the believers, the disciples see, wait a second, there is power in the spiritual realm they're reminded of how much greater God is. They're convicted, like, wait a second, we can't be living for these evil things. We can't be aligning our lives with these old patterns. So let's move to the new. And it came at sacrifice. It came with surrender. You talk about sacrifice. I mean, they gave up a lot. You may say, it's, why, why is it such a big deal to give up a scroll? Why were the scrolls worth so much? Well, keep in mind, this is before the printing press. This is before Amazon. No one could just go back on and put one in their cart and get it shipped free with Prime. Like these were scrolls that people had been handed down, copied from person to person in their family for generations. And so the value was so high, 50,000 drachmas. If you read the footnote in your Bible, it'll tell you that that was a silver coin worth about a day's wage. What about 50,000 days wages is the value of these scrolls. That, that's, that's by our five-day work week, that's 191 years worth of labor. The current value is somewhere between 5 million and 6 million is what people think uh, for those scrolls. And they were willing to give all of that up. Why? Because they knew there was more power in who God was and living for his purposes. How did they do it? Well, I think the key is in verse 17. I emphasized it a moment ago. They were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Because of the shame, because of what they saw with the sons of Sceva, because of what they heard and the rumors of what they had, they, that had been experienced, they, they said, okay, God, you've got to be number one. And they did everything they could to push him to the place of prominence in their life. Do we, like the believers in Ephesus, sometimes try to keep one foot in our life before Jesus? Doing things that have been a part of our life for years, that make us feel good, that bring us comfort, that that make us feel um, value or pleasure, instead of fully letting go and clinging to who Jesus is. Where is it that you and I hold on to the old pattern instead of fully accepting the new? Do we even understand that there is a spiritual war going around us and there is an enemy who is adept at tempting us to live for the old and to cling to the old rather than clinging 
to the new? What are you holding on to? So some things that I just thought of from my own life, from my observations, I think probably all of us in some way can identify with virtually all of these. Are we sometimes holding on to an old view of sexual fulfillment and sexual expression and sexual identity? That it's about me and what I feel and what I want rather than embracing the new. God, what do you have to say about sex and sexuality and sexual expression? Are we sometimes holding on to an old view of life and that we live it for our pleasure, we live it for what makes us feel good instead of saying, God, what do you want me to live for? Do we sometimes hold on to old views of money, that it's there for me to to accelerate my dreams, to live the American dream, to get what I want, to have what I want, instead of letting go and saying, God, you've given me these resources to advance your kingdom and what you desire in this world. Do we sometimes hold on to to pride and and ego to say, I want to be right. I want to have the power, instead of letting go and saying, God, I want you to be right and I want you to have the power. Do we sometimes hold on in our own country to to political ideals, to political policies, to political candidates, thinking that somehow they'll be our savior, somehow they'll provide the perfect world when only Jesus can provide the perfect world and only Jesus is the savior. What are you holding on to? Because what we hold on to keeps us, if it's the old, from experiencing the fullness of who God is and his kingdom. And I would submit that for all of us, there's a continual battle. You may have seasons where you are doing great at holding on to the things of Jesus. You're holding his name high, you're giving him high honor, but the enemy is working. Now he can't conquer you. Maybe you remember the curse from from Genesis that the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The enemy cannot prevail against followers of Jesus, but it doesn't mean he can't afflict and he can't tempt and he can't discourage. And so we're all in this cosmic battle where he is finding ways, the enemy wants to find ways to distract you, to get you to move back to the old way, the old order, fulfilling yourself versus living for him. And so where's that at for you right now? Where are you holding on to the old and you need to let go and embrace the new? Look at what happens when you embrace the new. Verse 20. Look at the effects in in Ephesus. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. When God's people recognize their wrongdoing and their sin and they're convicted and they confess and they repent and they turn to him and embrace his way, God moves powerfully. And by the way, we have seen this in very recent days. Maybe you're tired of hearing about Asbury. I pray that's not the case. I pray that you wanna know even more about Asbury. Because what happened there among 18, 19, 20, and 21-year-old students, when they are convicted, they are compelled by the greatness of God to repent, to confess, to turn from living life for themselves and their selfish desires to living life for him. And they move towards him. And what does God do through that? Not only does he begin to affect change in the lives of those on the campus, but people are drawn to that campus and they're affected by, and they're changed. Not only does that happen, but it spreads out to other schools. You may not even know this, but in the week or so after Asbury, uh, the campus house at Purdue was holding worship services and they were seeing hundreds of students come there. They were seeing dozens of people repent for the first time, come to faith in Jesus and be baptized into him. God is continuing to move powerfully. And it's because people are impressed by the power of God and that compels them and propels them to live for his purposes. God is on the move. 
If we're going to pursue his purposes in this world, we have to elevate our, our appreciation for his greatness, hold him in high regard, and move our lives into alignment with who he is. So we have to answer the question, what's holding you back? What's holding me back? What's holding us back? And for every one of us, we battle a different thing in various seasons of our life, but to continually let go and instead cling to him. And what is that for you? Here's the challenge I have for you. In just a couple moments, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing a closing song. Uh, the closing song is Hosanna. Uh, Hosanna means save. It's an expression of praise. Would you just use that song to call out to Jesus? God, rescue me. Bring me back into your life. Bring me back on purpose with you. And I would just even make this extra invitation. For some of you, you need the tangible. You need the physical, like, like acts of worship. Would you maybe just sit as you sing and and maybe you feel compelled at some moment, just as we sing, uh, just to maybe come forward and kneel at the front of the room and just say, God, I am, I am giving back to you what is yours. I've been holding on too long. And make that song your anthem. And here's, here's the promise I'll make you, is if you're moved to come forward, to have that tangible, uh, that physical act of, of singing and praising, um, I'm gonna come out when the song's over. If you're still up here, that's okay. Um, I'm gonna pray over you. I'm gonna pray over the room. And you can stay here until our next worship experience starts. I'd encourage you if you're at home or you're on the beach, wherever you are watching, just to, to just take this moment and focus on him and what you need to let go of and how you need to grab hold of his life so you can pursue your purpose through absolute surrender. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to take your first step. Reach out to us. Reach out to the person you know who invited you. Come visit me at the end of our worship experience at the front of the room and I'll start the conversation with you. Email us, connect at lebanonchristian.org. Fill out a connection card, stick it in the, the, the offering box, scan the QR codes in our building and say, let's, let's start the conversation to help you experience this God who is way more powerful than anything else in this world. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for such a powerful story about how you moved and worked to the hearts of the believers in Ephesus through Paul. You display your power you draw people into your life and living for you. God, and I pray you would do the same today. Would you, would you draw us to see the things that hold us back? What are we clinging to? What, what do we want in this world that we hold on to rather than holding on to you? And would you draw us to, to let go of those things, uh, to cling to you, uh, to confess, to repent, to turn? Uh, draw us into this now. In your name we pray.